When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Hey, before we get going here, just want to give another shout out to the Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. A couple more of you joined this week. I really appreciate it. And uh, as I said in, in previous episodes, looking to do this more full time, uh, that would be insane. And so the more Patreon patrons I have, the more time I can allocate to finding new guests and reading their books and bringing that stuff to you guys. So I appreciate those who have been supporting me already. And uh, if you have benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. Another way you can support is to subscribe on YouTube and hit the notification bell. And then a third way, which would be huge, is uh, going to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be awesome. Uh, today's guest is another special one. We have with us Jordan Stefaniak, and we're going to be talking about some of his work on immutability. Uh, Jordan is a co-founder and the editor-in-chief over at the London Lyceum. Uh, I forgot all the stuff he just told me. Uh, like the editorial board. He's The London Lyceum is sick. Uh, if you guys don't know about this, I think it's uh, LondonLyceum.com. I'll have to bring him in. We'll ask. But it's, it's a podcast very much like this. Um, but they, they interview a lot of the similar similar guests. But they also have book reviews and they have a whole website going, something that um, I need to do. That would be fantastic. So without further ado, let me just pull Jordan in. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. It's, this is going to be fun. I'm excited for it. I think yeah. uh, you're doing some really neat stuff over here. Thanks, man. So I just butchered like the website. But where, where can people find the London Lyceum at? You didn't butcher it. It is okay. the LondonLyceum.com. And you're yes. right. Uh, right now, I mean, uh, primary meat of our stuff has been, you know, book review, critical book reviews. I'm not publishing just a summary of a book. That's a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. You can go uh, look at the table of contents and get that. Uh, what we've tried to do with those is to get some sort of expert on the topic and to critically engage important or popular books mm -hmm. and to do it in a way that is both charitable and very serious. And then I think the other thing we've done a lot of is just trying to get experts on different topics and saying, hey, give me the top five or six resources on your area of expertise so that we can learn and grow in those. So I think those are kind of unique and fun. Uh, yeah. We have goals to have more content uh, that's more expansive. But right now, that's the, been the meat of the content on the website anyway. Yeah. So uh, with the name, my, my brother asked me the other day because he was listening to uh, our episode on there. Yeah. He's like, well, why why Lennon Lyceum? And I I didn't know if uh, if I caught this in one of your earlier episodes or not, but I figured, okay, you guys are, uh, at least you are 1689 uh, Baptist. So I thought London, maybe following that, and then Lyceum because like Aristotle's 
Lyceum. But then I Googled it and there is a place called the London Lyceum. So I'm like, dude, I don't actually understand, I think. Yeah, I had no idea there was actually a place called the London Lyceum until after we started. And when I tried to Google our stuff, that was what always came up. We finally eclipsed them in the Google rankings. So I'm excited about that. But you are right. Um, I mean, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith is the primary reason we called it London. Though, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of awesome stuff in London. But yeah, lots of, lots of, uh, or Baptists, so our forebearers were, uh, a lot spent a lot of significant time there and then yeah the lyceum with with uh aristotle so the idea was just hey we're baptists we're confessional baptists but we are actually wanting to be philosophically aware and oriented and and things like that so just pairing the two together i thought made it pretty unique and i like the ll combo so it was kind of fun well you're you're a baptist so you have to do the alliteration like that's Part of the DNA. <laughs> you know, we've got four values and they're all C's. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And the last one has two C's. So that's yeah. technically five. <laughs> that's fantastic, man. Well, uh, okay. So you tell me about like uh, analytic theology. Like, why, how, how'd you get into that? Um, I looked at your, your THM uh, or your thesis mm-hmm. and saw Welty, like we talked about before. I yeah. absolutely love Welty. All my all my uh, listeners love Welty. How did you get into like the philosophical side of theology, dude? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I went to seminary as an MDiv student, um, thinking philosophy for, for the most part was for the birds. Mm. You know, I became a Calvinist uh, probably, which I know. You know, whoever's listening to this, there's probably half of you guys hate Calvinism. Whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm a Calvinist. It is what it is. I'm not you know belligerent about it. We can be friends. It's cool. But I became a Calvinist senior year of college, I think. And so I wanted to go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary because, well, they're they're all Calvinists there, which is not totally true, but for the most part. Um, And so I'm doing this, and I hear all these guys talking about philosophy. I'm like, dude, that has nothing to do with the Bible. What are you guys doing? That's a waste of time. Colossians 2.8. Don't you Colossians 2.8, bro? Philosophy (laughs) is bad news. Uh, Well, a year or so in, I, I become a member of a local church, and the associate pastor there, we really develop a, a relationship, a friendship, and he's uh, finishing up his PhD in philosophy. And so he starts slowly feeding me these philosophical theology type things. I think the first book he gave me to read was, um, I think, Faith and Rationality with Walter Storff and yeah. uh, Plantiga and others. And from there, I just kept reading what he kept giving me and realizing, wow, I am totally wrong in this. Hmm. And I love theology, but I love philosophy and the tools and resources it provides me to do good, serious theology. So over time, as I just kept reading uh, f- from the, the genesis of that associate pastor, I, I become just enamored with analytic theology and finding that it is a f- fabulous tool. It's not the only tool to right. do good theology, but I think it's a, it's an underused tool and it's a very, very good one. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, I have a similar, similar uh, story uh, to you. When, when did you graduate college? Uh, 2012. Okay. So, so two years before me and I became a, a Calvinist my, my senior year of, of college as well. My brother just kind of dumped, he was at Ted's and became uh, a Calvinist in Tom McCall's class. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Dr. We love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and for those who don't know, Tom McCall is like the Arminian of Arminians and uh, super, super good analytic theologian and is in his own right. But my brother yeah, went the opposite way. 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I just said, you know, Tom's awesome. So just yeah, give him a shout out man. if he listens. Yeah, and I'm sure he's really, uh, yeah, hating the fact that my brother and then me became Calvinist because of him. Uh, but yeah, then then uh, starting starting getting into like just tons and tons and tons and tons of John Piper. But then I thought I want to read the people who Piper's reading. I want to read the people who I never really went for Sproul that much, but I would hear Sproul talk, and so I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to go read Turretin. And then once I got to Turretin, it was like okay, uh, philosophy is a really big deal and it's not, it's not evil. All of our forefathers did that. And so I need to do this as well. Uh, so, so I'm going to Lord willing go on to per- pursue some philosophy, but that's what you're doing right now, right? You're, you're getting a, yeah. your PhD in philosophy and that's at, at Birmingham. Yeah. The university of Birmingham. Uh, I think it's a great program. Uh, it's, it's really good for my unique for my family situation. So I, I know a lot of people, they, they do school really fast and they're like single uh, and getting their PhD when they're like 25 right. and they, they can manage that. Well, I've got a family, I've got two kids. Um, I'm a little slower than everybody else because hmm. um, I'm trying to pay my way, pay my way. So I, I couldn't really make a residential, uh, well, I could make a residential program work, but I couldn't make a program work that required me to be like a TA and make like nothing right. and support my family. So I get, the pleasure. I work full time in the finance industry, and then I, you know, at nights I'm, I'm a PhD student at the University of Birmingham. I go over there occasionally, and then you know I've got supervision meetings with my awesome. I've got two supervisors. My main one's Nick Effingham, who's yeah. a, a tremendous philosopher in his own right, and then my other one's Eugen Nagasawa. And yeah. Eugen, I mean, Eugen's brilliant. So I mean, it's it's yeah. a great time, uh, great experience. I, I I recommend it. I've I've learned a ton. I've been told that I'm really dumb, not not in those words, but you know, it's it's sharpened me in, in a lot of ways that have been really really helpful. Yeah, it's awesome. I think uh, uh, Eugen, he's the editor of the of the Elements, Cambridge Elements, I think. Yeah, that and uh, religious studies, the journal. Oh, snap! Okay, so he's 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 doing. And I don't know how he does all that he does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just a beast. And, you know, he's on closer to truth all the time. He just had a conference uh, with, at, I guess, the University of Birmingham. Technically, it was online uh, since because COVID and all that mm. stuff. But closer to truth, what's his name? I can't remember his name, but he does all those cool videos. It was a part of the conference, and Eugen's organizing the whole thing. I'm like, wow, yeah, dude, you're a beast. Yeah, we don't mention here him here on this podcast because he's our competitor. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's awesome. I always forget his name too, and then it comes to me when I wake up at night. Um, yeah, he's that that show is yeah. super good, but I am trying to steal all of his guests, so hope he doesn't mind. Uh, dude, that's awesome. So, so I wanted to get into uh, some of your work because you are a you know you're you're confessional and you're an uh, analytic theologian, and you're studying philosophy. And so all that kind of comes together. And I think you are following the roots of, of some of our, our fantastic forebears like Turretin and saying, I'm going to bring all these tools together, history and scripture and philosophy, in order to, to think clearly about this stuff. And I think, would you call yourself, um, would you say that you're invested in like the retrieval project or, or something different? Are you just, are you more constructive? Yeah, no, I think I've invested in, in retrieval and renewal type efforts. Uh, you know, I've got a book proposal out there um, on classical theism in general, 
And I, I, I mean, I use that terminology to some degree, though. It's to some degree, it's just kind of a fancy grab bag. You know, what was yeah. it five years ago? If you were in churchy kind of context, it was all about being gospel centered. Yeah. You know, you just throw that word in there because it's, it's like magic. <laughs> That's and, right. You know, it brings the masses. So it, in some sense, I don't love the word, but at the same time, I do think it's a good one. And I think it kind of captures to some degree what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So I, I am part of my goal is, okay, let's, let's find the boundaries to where it's safe for us to say, okay, here's your sandbox, be creative within your sandbox. I'm cool with you not being the same as me, but I know where our, a confessional box is. I know where our creedal box is so that I can just say, yeah, it's it's not a big deal for you to disagree with, with X, Y, or Z, as long as you affirm these other things. Yeah. Okay. So, so before we get in, we're going to be talking about immutability. Uh, but just a question on the different sources. So maybe a prolegomena question about sources and theology. So we have the the main ones. You know, you have you have some philosophy in there, which uh, many theologians go, ah, you know, we we poo poo, but but all of our ancestors, philosophy, we got history, and then we got the phenomena of scripture, uh, the Bible yeah. itself. Um, do you when it comes to like ordering those? Is is there a proper order to them, or do they are they e- equally? equally ultimate and they inform one another? Like, have you, have you thought through, it's a really tough question, I think, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I go with some vague sense of the hermeneutical spiral, right. Where uh-huh. I, I don't, I mean, I think there's probably a proper epistemic ordering, but I don't know anyone in their life who actually is going to follow, you know, this 10 step process. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, fundamentally it's faith seeking understanding. So I think we have a posture of faith, and we're synthesizing all these resources together. I mean, I do take Scripture as supreme, normatively supreme in, in all respects, yeah. but um, Scripture is either silent or severely underdetermined in a lot of these things. So it's necessary to use all these other historical tools. I mean, I, I would follow probably someone like Oliver Crisp, who I think mm-hmm. in his Divinity and Humanity book, he talks about uh, levels of authority, and it, and creedal authority has... does have a significant level of authority to where, yes, you can disagree with it, but it it takes a good amount of evidence, counter evidence to really say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and discard what's being taught here. You really have to have a convincing case to do that. And then there's that next level of confessional dogma where you can make a less convincing case and overturn that. Um, But you would obviously be leaving your own confessional tradition if you do that to a significant extent. Yeah. Yeah. That, so I, I'm not confessional. I love the 1689. Um, DA Carson got in early and kind of wrecked, wrecked my stuff when, with like covenant. <laughs> the, so I, I'm a little bit more on the new covenant side and my brother is oh, like, man, don't Uber. do that to me. I know, man. I know. You know, Welty's got a critique of Carson I know. out I, there. I, I haven't read it yet. I need to, I'm scared of it. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I, I need to, um, yeah, so so it's just it's in there a little bit, and so I'm I'm like, dude, I love 1689. Kind of wish that I could. I always wish I could be a a, a presby, and I would go to like the OPC no. and be like super <laughs> hardcore pres. That's like I ever, I, I can't yeah. do it. I just my my views on baptism, but um, <clears throat> there's there's a, a concern that, that Kant brings up in uh, what is enlightenment, and and his idea is is like if you once you go in on this confession, you put yourself in this place where you are not considering other alternatives you're not like able to consider uh other alternatives that you could be wrong because because then you're you're ostracizing yourself from your own community that you've you've been a part of what do you make of of that concern uh when it when it comes to like being confessional 
I mean, that, that's a good question. I think that's a, that depending on the person, that's a serious concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a, a modal claim, though. It's not. It's not like it's not possible for you to consider alternatives. Right. right. I mean, maybe for like you know a twelve-year-old. That might not be, you know, possible in, in in their conceptual scheme to do that. And maybe somebody who's in an, you know, an echo chamber on the internet, yeah. it's not possible. But even, it's not a metaphysical, po- po- you know, thing of possibility or necessity. So I think there are particular habits of mind and virtues that everyone should develop. And if you do those appropriately, I, I think you're going to be fine to weigh other alternatives and really everybody has to have some sort of presupposition and starting point. Yeah. It's not like you can just become unbiased and completely objective. Right. Uh, for me, confessional is, well, I've got this time tested document uh, that I agree with and I confess. Um, it, it's possible that it's wrong. It's possible that there are areas that need revision, but I'm going to start with the posture of, yeah, this is right. Unless I have a significant amount of counter evidence. Yeah. And unless I have that, that really tips the scales to me, like, yeah, I'm okay saying, you know what? I'm not confident in this area, but I'm going to go with this because I, it's got the time tested factor on, on it. And plus, yeah, I am a part of the tradition. So what? Yeah. You know, it's not that I'm, I'm not going to ostracize you or anything. And if it's a secondary issue, big deal. Like, I mean, we can enjoy each other's fellowship, whatever. Yeah. No, I like that, man. And I think, I think it, it plays history and tradition. They they play this restraining role, um, which says like, Hey, do, like, do you want to let go of simplicity? Okay, well, there's a there's a lot of weight to that. There, yeah. you actually have to. You can't just willy nilly wake up one day and oh, you know, I don't think I believe that anymore. No, if you're gonna if you're gonna depart from what your tradition says, what your forefathers say, you 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 better have a really good reason. Kind of like you're saying with the creeds, it's not as extreme as the creeds because I think if you start disagreeing with the creeds, that's that's you're running into kind of some heresy stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, some heterodoxy or or not even heterodoxy, just, just different convictions when it comes to disagreeing with your own tradition, but it, it has weight to it. And I think that's actually a really helpful thing that you don't get in the evangelical fish circles that, that I grew up in, that I still run in where it's kind of like, Oh, today I'm an open theist. I'm like, bro. Yeah. It's I, I don't know news. if it, I don't know if it's something in the American water, but I think a lot of us have this tendency just to change our minds overnight like that and not really latch onto something rock solid and be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give it a few years to make sure that this is actually something I want to change my mind on. So uh, I think, you know, it's, we're, we're way too fast to give in and change our minds on stuff. Now I think you should be open to reason. You Mm. should be willing to weigh all sorts of arguments, but it seems to me that a lot of the times people change their minds because of stupid stuff, yeah. right? Uh, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> I could think of teenagers who'd probably change their minds because, well, the the girl I like goes to a different, you know, <laughs> denominational church. So, right. well, I, now I'm a Methodist or or now I'm a Ca- Roman Catholic just because right. just silly things like that yeah. uh, happen all the time. And even, th- I mean, there's all sorts of emotional, psychological factors that go into these things that it's not wrong to have those feelings, but it seems to me that you need to have the whole package deal before you make significant, you know, changes to foundational doctrines. Now, I'm not talking about changing your position on eschatology. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's pretty like third depending tier on the to me. Yeah, yeah I guess, you know, my undergrad would beg to differ, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's the name I shall not speak. And. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I mean, really, I think, you know, if it's something that has been confessed throughout the history of the church, that's not something you can change in six months. That's not something you can change yeah. in really a couple of years. I think you need to have serious reasons for it. And I'm not saying you, you can't change your mind, mm-hmm. but I just think we need to be more careful about it and more uh, weigh it, weigh it out, costs and benefits a little bit more, get other people's feedback, all those types of things. Yeah. But, you know, if you're in a local church, you know, th- that usually will help you to be careful and slow. Right. But that's yeah. another big part of it. Yeah. Being a, a church member, being involved in your church and knowing your pastor and discussing things with them and having a good pastor who can, can reason with you and not be freaked out that you might leave or something like that. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, too many of our churches, ha- you know, have that weird silo thing, or if you cha- if you even bring up the possibility of, you know, I've been thinking about say pedo baptism. Yeah. You're gone. And which is just insane to me. You should have a safe space where you can actually engage and critically wrestle with things. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah. But yeah. No, I love that, dude. That's something that, that I learned at TED's. Uh, coming in, I was more of a cage stage uh, Calvinist. But all my professors, you know, they got Lutherans, I got uh, Methodists all over the place. And these guys would eat my lunch. And I'll, I got Dispies. And they'll, they'll eat my lunch. They'll destroy me if I wanted to debate them. And I, I just thought, hey, look, they're evangelical. They're finding it in Scripture. If they do that, that's cool, man. If someone that I disciple comes to a different position than me and they can back it up with Scripture, that's great. I'm excited. I still am going to argue for my position and stuff. But, dude, if you're if the Bible's your your ultimate authority and you're finding it there, that's really cool. I'm really glad that you came to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of the creeds, right? We can all confess the same similar doctrine that's been handed down to us from, from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and we can be friends. Yeah. I don't have to get upset if you change your mind and say, you know what, I'm going to go um, be whatever it is. I, you know, I'm a Baptist, so a lot of people like to go to be Presbyterians because they think that's edgy. Yeah. Uh, not that, you know, no hate on my Presbyterian friends, but there's lots right. of ex-Baptists who like to go Presbyterian for and, stupid and, reasons. And then it's, then it's Anglican. <laughs> and then Anglican's yeah. like the last stop before. Yeah. Anglican's super, super hot right now. Like yeah, uh, would say. That's right. So hot right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's jump in. Some people are already frustrated. We're not talking about immu- immutability, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so, so God is immutable. And uh, I grabbed this definition from you. God is mutable if and only if nothing about God can change. And so that's a pretty like, hardcore, strong uh, yeah. uh, definition there. Uh, you, you, we got to talk about changes and stuff too. So uh, you, you go over strong and weak changes. Can you, can you lay those out for us? Yeah, man, there's lots of stuff to go on in this discussion. <laughs> so what, I guess you, you gave the definition God is immutable if and only if. Uh, nothing about God can change. So yeah, the change part is pretty important. Uh, and I think there's two ways to, to categorize change. I mean, there's a spectrum, obviously, on, on thinking about change. And you could have a whole episode on just what is change? What are the right. metaphysics of change? You know, you've got questions of time, questions, mm-hmm. all sorts of questions. But I would just say there's broadly a, a weak sort of a change and a strong sort of a change. So a strong sort of a change would just be a change is having a property at one time and then lacking it at another. So that could be any type of property. Yeah. Uh, that could be, uh, you know, the classic uh, example that somebody like Aquinas gives is, uh, say there's a statue and then say that there is, you, I mean, you're there next to a statue. Statues in one place, you move from the left of the statue to the right of the statue. In that sense, on a strong account of change, you would have to say the statue changed because the statue had a property 
yeah. I mean, depending on what you take those properties to be of you being to the right and then you being to the left. Um, but most people would say, no, the statue hasn't uh, gotten a new property or just hasn't changed. So in that sense, it would be a weak change where it's this, I guess, Cambridge or yeah. logical change where the change would be logically parasitic on something else. So in that sense, yeah, kind of the statue's changed, but it's really the only thing that's really changing in the world is my position, not the statues. Yeah. So a real change would have to be something involved in me causally changing or undergoing a change. Uh, I'd have to be a part of that. Whereas the, you know, the person moving from left to right of me doesn't cause me to under, undergo anything intrinsic. It's just extrinsic to me. Yeah. I, I love the, the uh, Cambridge changes. Uh, I think Peter Geach may have, may have coined that term uh, referring to like Russell and those guys, but, so, uh, so are those, do you consider those changes real? Like, like relational changes, like, um, my mom went from being, uh, when she gave birth to my, my brother, Joel, she went from not being a mom to being a mom. Is that, is that a real change? Is that a, a weak change, strong change? Is that a Cambridge change? What, what do you make of that? Well, in your mother's scenario, I would say that's definitely a real change Okay, because yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she was undergoing that, that process of, of giving birth. Yeah. Now, for say you, uh, I don't know. Is your brother older or younger He's than you? older? Yeah. Okay. So that's not a good example. So maybe your older brother, yeah. you know, he, however old he is when you, uh, you know, are birthed and he's now a brother that I would say is not a real change in any ontological sense. So yeah. when we're talking about changes, we're talking about ontological adjustments to me in some way. Yeah. Yes. I do think he is, has some sort of additional logical property to him, but I don't think that is a real change in any, yeah. in any sense. It's a, it's a Cambridge or logical type of change. However yeah. you want to categorize those. Yeah. So it's, it's nothing about as an ontology. Like if you had like a ontology uh, x-ray machine, you're not seeing any change going on there in, in his ontology, but, but relationally now he's related to someone and you could say it's a logical yeah. change. He's related to me as an older brother. Um, how that, that's interesting with my mom though. You see when she, after she gave, before and after she gave birth, you would say there is an ontological change. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Like how, well, how I so? don't know if it's, yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, if you're giving birth, you're, you're undergoing some sort of change yeah. physically in that sense. Okay. Um, so. Okay. From, okay. From, a, from the physical. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you would be changing. Whereas, you know, your brother, he is not actually undergoing any act of birth at that yeah. moment yeah, or yeah, at that yeah. time. So it's, I think his is a little bit different, a better, a better example for what would be a Cambridge change. Yeah. So there's, there's relational changes and there's, I think even, even a, the best example is one you already gave, but the positional change of just now I'm on the right of my brother and he has this kind yeah. of logical property of being to the left or whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then he moves around and, and yeah, that's helpful. Because I mean, when you want to get, if you want to get stuck in on on thinking about relations, I mean, you could spend forever talking. There's not really a lot of monograph. There, there is no monograph on the metaphysics of relations that exists. Hmm. Just a single monograph. There is a, an edited volume called the Metaphysics of Relations from Oxford yeah. uh, that you can. Get, it's short, small, but you'll find that there are all sorts of ways of understanding relations and what 
their metaphysics amounts to. So depending on who you talk to, you're going to get different understandings of what would potentially count as a real change, the addition of some sort of property and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. So, that, I mean, obviously that impacts how you understand God doesn't change. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So some who are thinking that that's pedantic or, or uh, overly technical, it's not like we, we have to get to the, that's why analytic theology is important and using the tools of analytic philosophy is important because we want to get clear on this stuff as far as we can, uh, because we're talking about God, what could be more important than getting clear on than God and, and his yeah. relation to us, whether he has one or not is kind of an important deal. So, so you have this strong sense of uh, immutability. God is immutable if and only if nothing about God can change. Um, and and then you gave some some other uh, senses of immutability, um, weaker senses, I would say. Can can you yeah. like repersonate those for us? Yeah. So I I think if you read the literature out there, you're going to find several senses of immutability. I think probably across the board. Every single Christian wants to affirm some sense of immutability. Right. It's just depending on what is actually immutable. So you have this strong overarching sense of nothing about God can change. Uh, then you have other views, which I don't know if anyone really takes this view, but it, it's a possible sense, which would be God is immutable if and only if something, if he never changes. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, if you are, you know, stuck in time or, or you know, a glitch on your computer and your screen is frozen in some sense that's immutable. But I, I think that would be a bad sense of immutability because, you know, maybe I am a really stupid person and I'm stuck in my mm. yeah. <laughs> stupidity. Th- that's not a good immutability, right? right? That's a bad immutability. So I don't yeah. think anyone wants to to say that's what's going on here. Well, so Jordan, with that one, um, I, I see a difference between, between yours and that one is that uh, in that, you're saying uh, God cannot change, and this yeah, would say right. God never changes. God could change, but but yeah. he he never actually does. Yeah, that's right. For, and for one I think you know if you go to your own local church, uh, most churches they that's probably how they are phrasing it. God never changes, yeah. so you can trust him. Yeah. Whereas I think the trust should be lodged more in no, he it's it's impossible for him to actually change because of his nature. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, I mean, you could even parse it differently too. You can do it all sorts of different ways. That's why this is a fun conversation, but you could say, yeah, God never changes. Um, he, he will never change. Uh, and you go with it like a Calvinist route because there's nothing that's going to surprise him. So yeah, maybe yeah. he, he could, if something could surprise him, but nothing. So you might, you might couch it more in God's omniscience than in his, uh, nature, which again, yeah. if you're, uh, act as purist, and it's kind of all in the same thing. But if you did want to parse those out, you might parse it in his omniscience instead of his his nature. But, but yeah. So um, another way to go. But um, yeah. yeah, let's keep going here. And I think this other one has been more popular recently, which is God is immutable. Say if and only if his essential properties cannot change. Yeah. Now. A lot of this depends on what you mean by essential properties and, and the other commitments that you have regarding God. But I think uh, a key representative of this type of view would be someone like Bruce Ware, who would say, yes, God is ontologically immutable. Yes, God is ethically immutable, but he is relationally mutable. So he has the ability to have a relationship with me 
of some sort of give and take. Now, depending on who you talk to, that give and take is going to look different. Right. You know, somebody like Thomas Ord is going to look at Bruce Ware's relational mutability and say, that's not relational mutability. No, that's not, not give yeah. and take. Right. So there's, you know, a spectrum here. But I think the idea, I think Jay Wesley Richards has an older book, 2003-ish, called The Untamed God, uh, where he talks about, you know, theological essentialism. Um, and really the idea is just, you know, there are certain properties that are essential that God has to have that he cannot have, you know, lose. He cannot lack. Um, these would be the immutable things, it, you know, his, his omniscience, his yeah. omnipotence, those things, they don't change. But there's a sense where I think somebody like Jay would say, well, look at the incarnation, right? Clearly there was a before and after. It's not like Jesus was the second person, the Trinity was always incarnate. Yeah. So there has to be some sort of change. So they want to say, you know, bracket off. God can take on accidental attributes, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then there would be like a subset of this, which is just God is immutable. If and only if say his ethical character cannot change. Yeah. So they'd want to say, yeah, I could be an open theist. So God's knowledge can change all those types of things. The only thing that doesn't change is that fact that he's good. Yeah. So Charles Hartshorn, others like that would be popularizers uh, of uh, a viewpoint on immutability like this. But I think across the board, you're going to get, everybody wants to say God can't change in some way. Yeah. It's just uh, some people are afraid of the extreme. God can't change. It's impossible for him to change in any respect because of, and I mean, I think we'll get into some of the objections, yeah. but I, I think just naturally when you hear God cannot change, there's some sort of intuitive pull of like, that's weird. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah. Well, because you got the two sides of the coin. Because on the one side, you you want um, okay, so God can't change. So uh, I'm predestined before the foundation of the earth to be a Christian, and uh, he who started this good work in me is going to bring it to completion. So that's great, man. I, I don't want God to change there. But then you go, well, wait a second. Like if God can't change, and He didn't have a relation with me before I was made, how does He have a relationship? relationship with me now like he can't change he can't so you get this kind of tension just immediately right there's there's all sorts of different ways to, to figure it out but yeah it's it's funny depending on which which aspect you're looking at uh how how big a, a problem is it is for us i think all of us yeah. should be thinking about it though i think it's it's at least an apparent problem for all of us who want to affirm that god is uh immutable and that he loves us right yeah i mean right i think everybody wants to say that God loves me and he cannot not love me. Because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, th th it becomes terrifying if you think, well, God could potentially change his mind about me and say, you know what? I, I thought I really loved Jordan, but the thing that he did over here, man, that just pissed me off. Right. Right. <laughs> or, that's or, a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a right. living God. So or, or you don't mind. want that. Yeah, or yeah. change his mind about, or, or become bad, right? If he if he's mm -hmm. able to diminish in his goodness, that, and yet he remains all powerful. Ho holy cow, that's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know when it comes to this discussion, it's super important that we all affirm some sort of immutability. I will end up defending as we talk about the strong version because I think it's the only version that can really uh, hold together the fact that he can actually love me yeah. uh, with an immutable. Uh, nature and all, all that goes with it. So I think you will get there, but you have to affirm the strong version if you want God to never change his mind on those things. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's let's work into that. So, the the character, the character one is is interesting to me, and it's been, it's been plausible. It's been made plausible by guys like uh, John Peckham, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Ryan Mullins, and, and and folks like that. Um, the essential properties one, I used to kind of hold a little bit more. Uh, I love John Frame. Sometimes you listen to the show, so shout out uh, John Frame. Um, I, I like I like his model. Um, I know he's gotten in trouble and like Paul Helm has, has shredded him on his, on his uh, Helm's deep blog. But I, I think the authorial now, which can by the way is probably the greatest name for a blog so good. of all time. So good. Even if he, he, he had to do that. Yeah. Helm's deep. He's a, for those, for those who don't know, Paul Helm is an awesome philosopher and theologian. His name is Paul Helm and his blog post is called Helm's deep, which is just fantastic. You can't beat that. No, it's so good. He already won the game. So, um, so I think I want to get there because I want you to to help convince me here. But um, did you did you want to go into the historical thinkers at all, or should we just keep going on? Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you a smattering. So, I yeah. think honestly, if you look from the beginning of the church to now, the near universal consensus is God is entirely immutable in all ways. Mm. So if we're going to change that, we need to have some serious firepower. Now I, so you mentioned guys like John Peckham, Ryan Mullins, uh, you know, I haven't read John's latest book. I plan to, uh, I've read a lot of Ryan's work. He, I think he's super sharp. He's hilarious. Yeah. Um, he but I, I, I think he's wrong on some of these things and I'm willing to start with the posture of, I think the tradition is right. So you go from Gregory of Nyssa, of Nazianzus, Augustine, you got, you got Arminius, you've got Aquinas, Anselm, Turretin, I mean, Bavink, you've, you've got everybody all confessing the same God is immutable in every respect. He's immutable in both knowing and willing, in essence, in decreeing, in being. What all these terminology, terminological words they're saying. Now, I think there is some room to explain what that means, and th- there's a little bit of latitude in there mm-hmm. of a, a stronger, strong immutability versus just a typical strong immutability. But I think across the church history, you're going to find it, and you find it. In some church councils, so Council of Antioch 325 uh, and the anathemas and yeah. those things which most people don't actually read, right. <laughs> you're going to find it says we anathemize those who, suppo- those who suppose that he is immutable by his own act of will, just as those who derive his birth from that which is not and deny that he's immutable in the way the Father is. So the idea here is saying not that we anathemize immutability but those who think that he's immutable because of his will. Yeah, he just They want to say, no, it's because of his nature. Right. Uh, Ni- Nicaea in 325, similar to denial, where uh, those who say that he, this being Christ, is mutable or alterable, the Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes. Yeah. So I, 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 I honestly think people have not realized that something like the Nicene Creed actually anathematizes those who say that God is mutable. Yeah. I don't think they've realized that. I don't think they've reckoned with that fact. Yeah. And then obviously you've got all the confessional documents where God is immutable in essence and will. And Richard Muller, I mean, th- the the post-reformed do- dogmatics like, you know, boss in every sense of the word says, it is a mark of continuity in the thought of the church from the time of the fathers through the 17th century, yeah. this doctrine of immutability. So 
across the board. I think we have a strong, strong, strong consensus. This is not uh, actus purus type of consensus where that shows up on the scene later. And mm-hmm. maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Um, but it's you know it's a comes in the medieval period and and on. This is something that's confessed throughout yeah. the history of the church. So I think changing this pun intended, I guess, yeah. you've got to be careful. Yeah. Well, so so two things here. So uh, I wanted to talk about triage really quick, but, but first, some people are, it, this is going to be on YouTube, and I love you folks on YouTube, but sometimes you guys just make these blanket statements. They're crazy, crazy things. Uh, someone out there is going to be thinking, well, of course, Christ is mutable because he was born. God can be mutable because he was born in Christ. And just to address that point really quick, it's like theology 101, but some haven't taken that. So that's okay. Um, but uh, there's this qua move. according uh, Qua his, according to his human nature, yes, he changes. But according to his divine nature, no, he does not change. And so that's the, the whole point of the hypostatic union, that one person, the second person of the, of the Trinity, the Son, has two natures. Uh, one person, two natures. So one nature can change. The other divine nature does not change. Yeah. And you can do some cool, fancy moves like J.C. Beale and say, you know what? I'm going to do subclassical logic. Yeah. And it's just contradictory, but it's still true, which yeah. I still don't understand how that works. But, you know, now, you yeah. can do that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I got to be careful with that one. It's it's still tricky to me, too. Yeah. Um, but. But all Christians affirm that. Uh, if you're a Christian, then you affirm the hypostatic union, even if you don't have that yeah. language. And so yeah. just for those who are, who are confused by that, who might think Christ changes. Yeah, yeah. Christ changes according to his human nature, for sure. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's that, I mean that's the traditional easy way to just explain it. Look, yeah, he changes, but that's it, it, his, his nature. Now, obviously... When you, you go that route, you get all these questions. Well, can natures change or is it just persons that change? Right. Uh, is this just a metaphysical mistake? So I think those are serious questions, but yeah. but we, we can save those for a little bit later. Yeah. I do think, I mean, we talked historical consensus for all, all your listeners. We talked about, you know, you're, you were talking about triage, right? The, so we have scripture that's supposed to be supreme where there is seems to be scripture that generates the claim that God doesn't change. It's not just that, you know, some dude dreams it up in his head, right. you know, while he's a monk on, you know, I don't know, Lake Louise in Canada. Yeah. It's looking at texts like Malachi 3.6, where it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Samuel 15.29, God is not a man that he should have regret. James 1.17, there's no variation or shadow due to change in God. Hebrews 6, 17 to 18, where it's the unchangeable character of his purpose. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, everybody wants to confess that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that seems to mean he's immutable. Yeah. <laughs> what sense is, the, is, is he the same? Yeah. Yeah, that last one might be even used for the character because Jesus in his human nature can change absolutely but his nature does not. But but anyways, uh, yeah. when, when I was thinking of, of triage, I was thinking, where does this doctrine fall? Mm. Um, it's always hard doing triage. Like, well, this one's more important than that one. But even, I guess, maybe even if you were uncomfortable with that, um, 
just couching it in what's most important for today. Like does, does immutability. So you got the omnis is, is uh, God is uh, omnipresent, omniscient and uh, omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent uh, classical theism. Like dude, everyone wants to affirm those three is immutability as important. Does it, does it fit in there or is it right after those? Is it above simplicity? What, what do you, just in your mind, what do you think? That <laughs> I don't have a good answer. I personally don't like having only three tiers. Sure. Uh, I'd like to have more than that. Uh, I mean, I, I'd want to have just typical Orthodox Christianity where you have to affirm, let's say, the Apostles' Creed. Okay. That's just a fundamental basic thing you have to be to be Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get outside that bound, there seems to be, you know, kind of like, a second tier orthodoxy where you're pulling in more uh, robust orthodox categories before you hit something like confessional or denominational boundaries. There seems to be something that's somewhere in between there because it's not like the apostles creed gives me divine simplicity and all these things, but I think those are more important than denominational or confessional boundaries would go. I think they are somewhere between those two things where they are a, in some sense, a tier one issue, mm-hmm. but in some sense, they're like a tier one and a half because, you know, I think of somebody like Bruce Ware. I mean, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Bruce Ware was one of my systematic professors. I would have no problem having him as a member of my local church. Yeah. Uh, but at the, we have serious, serious disagreements. And so, I, you know, I've had my own internal well, if he says there's three wills in God, isn't that like a heresy or something? <laughs> you know, or, or, but at the same time, I, I've got so much to agree with him on. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. I struggle with that. And maybe Bruce has changed his mind on that. I don't know. And I'll give, if he ever listens to this, Bruce is one of the most kind-hearted, gentle, yeah. good people I've ever met. Um, so of the people who have tinkered with the Trinity or whatever, I would. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be nice to that guy. Wayne Grudem, he said some buttholeish things. Sorry, you know, whatever. He, he's <laughs> Bruce Ware never. Yeah, dude is like heart of gold, and so I I, I don't want to like anathematize somebody like him. Sure. Yeah, that makes I want to create this this middle tier where it's like, yeah, you still affirm the same core set of things that I do, but uh, yeah, so I, I'm not. I'm going to give you a good answer on that. I you, you, gotta, you guys got to write that up on uh, the London Lyceum. I'm, I'm waiting for yeah, it. That'd be fantastic. Maybe. Then I can start uh, anathema- anathematizing people uh, with more confidence. It's. I'll tell you, I've got a paper, which it's the greatest title I've ever come up with in my life. It's called Making the Great Tradition Great Again. And if yeah. someone steals that from me, I will find you and tell you that this it's out here now. Here. We all it's know mine. It's, it's time stamped here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, my hopefully goal in that is to do some of this work, though I don't have a total good answer on where everything falls exactly. Yeah. But I think doctrine of God issues like this immutability are more important than often given credit. Yeah. Uh, they should be higher on the list or I guess lower on the tier number if yeah. that's what you're going by. I, I just don't know if I want to put immutability as you have to be ortho. If you're orthodox, you have to affirm this version of immutability. Yeah. Yeah. It gives me, I just don't feel right about it, even though I'd want to do it. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you feel that way, man, because I think that that happens a lot, and we both know people who do that, and it's kind of 
take it or leave it. Here is uh, classical theism as I'm interpreting it. And if you do not agree with that, you have put yourself outside the faith. And it's like, dude, you could chill a little bit on that because that's not quite true. But I mean, we're all inconsistent believers, right? I mean, I've got stuff that I think that is think is right, but turns out to be totally wrong. Like probably all over the place. So I want to give, you know, space. I want to be humble, give, give, you know, I mean, as long as we confess the same very core things, but even in that, I mean, you could have a messed up way of getting to the fact that God is father or God is Trinity. And as long as you confess these things, right. It it gets messy. It does. (laughs) Yeah. When you, when you, yeah, you're talking salvation issues and then, uh, ordination issues and things like that. Uh, okay. So before we get into the, the philosophical stuff, which is I'm super pumped for just a, a quick, quick question on like the nature of immutability, the, the doctrine itself. So like the omnis, I would say probably cataphatic, they're positive about God. This is God is all powerful. God is all you're saying yeah. something positive about him uh, is immutability. Do you, do you see that more as apophatic? Is that a negative attribute or do you take yeah. it in, in more of a cataphatic uh, uh, tone? No, I'd, I definitely take it apophatic, okay. though, depending on who you talk to, they're going to be a little bit more willing to go the opposite route. Yeah. So I think it is just a negative. God doesn't change. Okay. Uh, it's probably the, the, the easiest way to go about it. But you, like, as you know, I think strictly apophatic theology is incoherent. Yeah. Because you are saying something saying positive, something. even though you're trying to deny. Yeah. Yeah. John Frame got me with that uh, early on. You, you're, you're, yeah, it's, there's another side of the coin, kind of like a polar concept argument where if you have the concept of one thing, you, you kind of have an idea of its polar opposite, uh, that it's pull the concept of its, of its polar yeah. opposite. Um, okay. Even though that's, that's really hard to say sometimes, but I yeah. think we'll, we'll get to the polar opposite or the polar concept, uh, what makes immutability immutable, uh, or, or a strong doctrine in like a seity and perfection and stuff like that. So let's just jump into some of those philosophical ones. Um, yeah, you got you got some arguments good. for immutability, uh, which they're they're philosophical, but they're they're still you're still trying to ground these in scripture. You're still finding these yeah. from the the scripture verses that you quoted earlier. Yeah, so I mean, these are just good examples of analytic theology, and a lot of this I think does utilize perfect being theology. Yeah. Now, depending on what you understand, perfect being theology, for whatever reason, it's got a bad rap. Like people think that perfect being theology is just well. <laughs> I think this is the best yeah. example of this. Therefore, God is just like this. Yeah. You know, I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah. Uh, therefore, God must throw a football like Trevor Lawrence. I mean, that's just stupid. Right. Like, that's, right. stop the caricatures. Like, chill out. Perfect being theology is not that. Yeah. Um, we're taking, you know, the great making properties that scripture provides us with using scripture as a, a, a guard, dogmatic guardrail to generate thoughts about God and we can be corrected in those types of things. So Thomas Aquinas, great practitioner of perfect being theology says, but God, since his infinity comprehends in itself, every plenitude of perfection of all of existence cannot acquire something or extend itself towards something he had not previously attained. So I'm going to try to formalize the argument a little bit, not totally, But I think this is the common one you're going to see for why you want to affirm immutability. And that's just fundamentally, they'll say, well, all change is change for the better or for the worse. And we all affirm that God is both perfect and infinite. uh, Therefore, he lacks nothing. 
So since all changes for the better or the worse and God can't get any better and definitely can't get any worse, it's impossible for him to change. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you read any text on immutability theologically or philosophically, you are going to encounter that argument. Yeah. I think it's a strong one. I think it's a good one. Uh, and I think it's, uh, there's a reason that it's withstood the test of time. I think there are questions about it, challenges about it. We can talk about it now or later if you want. Yeah. But I think that's a, I mean, that's a good argument. It makes sense intuitively. Yeah. Well, yeah. it does seem that every change would be for the better or for the worse. Even small changes of, let's say, God had knowledge of everything, but then suddenly there's this new fact that God suddenly changes to know. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems that now he was no he was previously just a little bit smaller in omniscience, and now he's larger in omniscience, and it seems that having a more greater capacity of omniscience would be a better thing to have. Right. So then God was less perfect, and now he's more perfect. Mm-hmm. That seems to be something I wouldn't want to say about God. I want to say that he is the greatest possible being, and I can't conceive of one that's greater than him, and for him to grow in perfection would be an imperfection. Right. Yeah, even that that possibility for him to grow better. Yeah, um, I love I love this one. I think it's really good. Uh, I remember exactly where I was on the highway when I when I thought of this uh, when I thought through this, and I was I was talking to my wife about it a couple years back, and uh, kind of formulated the same way you did. Um, but premise one is the one where I'm, I'm sure people will. will yeah. attack all changes for the better or the worse. And they go, well, what about Cambridge changes? Right? Like, yeah. uh, it doesn't seem like it's better to be on this side of my brother than on this side of my brother. Uh, so, so would so, you just say those are not real changes or those are not the changes in view? Yeah. I mean, you, you could say those aren't real changes or, I mean, let's just think, you know, is it better for God to know that I was born in Wichita, Kansas, which I was, or let's say I was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where I live now would it be better to have knowledge of one of those things? So if he changed in that knowledge, would that be better or worse? No, I don't think so, but I don't think those are changes. Mm. Um, You know, I I think number one, if you want to say that God's knowledge is changing in that sense, it requires him to be in time. And I think if you reject that God's in time, then that's just easy, easy pickings. But I think the other thing is, is just, those aren't really changes. That's just a difference in, in knowledge. So I think God would, unless God is true, like truly open and relational in like the maximal degree, which I think um, I'm okay just saying, yeah, I, I don't share a lot of those intuitions. I don't think scripture is consistent with that. Therefore, mm-hmm. I just, I'm not going to take the time to, to d- dismantle all the reasons for it. I'm just going to assume it. Yeah. Sorry, Dale. Uh, and anybody else who's listening, I love you, but yeah. you know, I'm just going to disagree there and not show my notes. So if we just take some basic consensus on what it means for God to be God, I, I he's eternal. He knows everything bef- before it happens. So if he knew that I was born in Raleigh versus born in, in Wichita, that wouldn't be a change in his knowledge. That would just be a difference in his knowledge. He would have known eternally beforehand that I was born in Raleigh. Yeah. So it seems to me that this just, I, I don't, I don't find the rebuttals all that persuasive in this. Yeah. I do think there are potential neutral changes where it's not better that I would have mowed the lawn at time T one than time T two. Yeah. But that's just not relevant for the sort of knowledge that God has. Yeah. He, right. 
if that makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. I, I think it might be better or worse if you mow the lawn here or there because because I'm so wedded to the authorial analogy. I think that like <laughs> the, the, it would it might wreck the story if the, if that were the case. Fair. But um, but yeah, that's that's that well, doesn't really. If mess I want to take that assumption, then I'll just kick out this objection altogether. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, okay. So then you got this, uh, the argument from uh, Sadie, there's a couple responses. Like I want to, I want to bring up, um, creation. Cause I think that is yeah. kind of a big one. Um, but I want to, I'll save it because it, it kind of hits on a lot of these. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So uh, argument from a Sadie, I think a Sadie is an underutilized attribute. Uh, and I think it's probably the most fundamental along with perfection. Yeah. Um, I don't think simplicity is the most fundamental attribute, which, nice, you know, it, go ahead, get angry, whatever. Um, <laughs> I think that's a good intuition. Eve, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence, like on, on um, simplicity. It d- depends on the day. But aseity, yeah. whether like you have to, have, everyone, you have to have aseity. Yeah. And I want to say that aseity will generate some version of simplicity sure. and not yeah. the other way around. So the argument right. from aseity would be something, you know, Matthew Barrett, whatever you think about him as a, a theologian or philosopher, um, you know, he's done a lot of popular stuff. So I don't know academically his seriousness on on these things but he does give an argument that i think is pretty popular on the s80 front which would be if god did change then it would mean that he needs uh he needs something or he depends on something or he adds something to himself all of which would deny his s80 um so the idea is just that all change requires dependence on something else or the addition of something whereas god is say and he's independent of everything so he can't depend on things which would just simply mean well god can't change because he's say he's he's independent of all these things so if change does require dependence of some sort um obviously you're going to have to get into what is this dependence relation is is it really uh problematic for a Sadie. So you could go William Lane Craig's route, right? Uh, if you're familiar with William Lane Craig, he, you know, he, he hates Platonism. Yeah. yeah. I wrote a whole book. Can I get Bill Craig and Craig Carter in a room and just let him go at it? That'd be awesome. That'd be something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Bill say, the, just, I think he would just deny premise one, right? That all change requires dependence on something else and just say, no, that's just not true. But I think that's that's kind of the sort of the argument that's going on here with us, Eddie, would just be, we think that change would mean that God had to depend on something. And it, I mean, it could be as simple as, I guess, you know, he would depend on my loving him or my um, sinning against him for him to have sorts of attributes of maybe justice or love or something. I don't yeah. know, right. I, but I think that's the, the intuition that's going on there. Yeah. I Okay. Um, so I like this one too, but I got to bring in the creation one because it's it just, it's super timely. So like God moved from being creator to not creator to creator. Um, and look, cause I'm, I'm with you here. I'm just this for devil's advocate here. No, go um, ahead, man. May, maybe literally, but um, maybe literally devil's advocate. But uh, so, so he, it seems like he would depend on his creatures in order to make him a creator. Like he, if there are no creatures, he's not a creator, but he creates. And it seems like he changes from not creator to creator and that he's depending on his creatures in order to have, that attribute of uh, creator. What, what, what do you make of that? 
Man, that's a good question. You've got, you'll have people, I think, in the tradition who will just say, God is eternally creator. Yeah. And so that will just say, well, he, he never actually changed to become creator because, well, God's outside of time. When yeah. God creates the world, that's, uh, that's when time begins to exist and all those things. So prior to time existing, say, uh, now obviously you get in all sorts of challenges and problems right. with, well, what is, what is time and et cetera. But I think you're going to find that they'll say, well, look, before creation, there's no time. Therefore, he was creator. It's not like he added this thing of creator. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, yeah, I don't know how great of an argument that is because it, it potentially generates other problems. Right. Though, I, I mean, I think on the whole, I mean, makes sense. Okay, I'm cool with that because I affirm God's timeless uh, and those things. So I, I'm. I mean, I think I'm okay with that, but I think that's a good question. Yeah. And I don't think that that had, had enough uh, thought given to it. And that's something that I'm trying to think through in my, yeah. in my own mind to turn it over. I don't know if I have a, a ready-made fancy way <laughs> to explain that and dance around it. Yeah. But, well, I'm with you on that one. Um, and, and like Ryan Mullins uh, came on the show, he talked about yeah. this this exact, because uh, he was going over one of his uh, Philosophy of Christie articles. And he's he's pretty devastating when it comes to like eternal, the eternal creator type thing. Because yeah. he says, well, it's similar to like eternal generation. So if you want to affirm an eternal generation, it seems like eternal creation, like that might that might get in uh, get you in some trouble here. Yeah. And I don't know how, how much he's fleshed out that argument, but that one is really scary for me. Because I, I do want to have eternal generation, right? Um, yeah. So and I think Mullins has pushed on the necessary creation piece mm-hmm. where if God is immutable, then he necessarily creates, which right. would go along with the eternal creator, right? Which seems to be a problem. So the idea is that I think most people want to say that God is contingently creator. He could have done otherwise. Yeah. But I think Mullins pushes in, well, Actually, if you go the immutability route, if you go the eternal creator route, uh, that requires there to be no accidents in God, no changes whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And if you have a contingent creation, that requires God to uh, obtain the accidental property of creator at some point. Um, And since creation isn't necessary, God cannot be immutable. But... For me, I think there's a couple avenues you can avoid the necessary tr- creation charge. You could just bite the bullet and say, yeah, it's necessary. It is what it is. I'm just going to eat, take that. Which, personally, I have some intuitions that say, you know what? It's a big deal. Because then, um, then you're just affirming that God has compatibilist uh, free will and not uh, libertarian free will, right? So he's just it's compatible with his nature and okay, so what? Yeah, so you just like Brian left out in his gigantic God and necessity book that is just an absolute beast to go mm-hmm. through would say that God is eternally, necessarily, essentially generous and creative, mm-hmm. which necessarily entails that he will create something besides himself. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, I'm like, well, that then that seems to be uh, still a willful necessity in some sense yeah um so i'm kind of like yeah you know what big deal if it's necessary but i i I definitely get the alternative it's like well you don't want to do that because you want it to be possible that god existed just eternally joyously by himself Uh, so i understand that and i think there's other ways you can get around it you could say well 
you can go the, the timeless route. Well, God's timeless. So yeah, he's kind of eternally creator, but at the same time, he's not. Yeah. Uh, and then you could just say, well, I think relations metaphysically aren't real. Mm-hmm. So yeah, God adds this property of creator, but it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't jeopardize his immutability whatsoever because it's not uh, something that's actually changing him. Yeah. Which I think that's a, a very creative way. The one that I haven't seen a lot of people go and one that I've, tr- I've got a piece that I'm working on that I'm trying to say, yeah, that's an option. You yeah. can just go this route and say, well, just the, the relations, those types of properties aren't the right sorts of things to, yeah. that would hurt immutability. Yeah. Well, one of my friends, Will, Will Bankston, PhD candidate uh, here at TEDS, he, he's got something similar. He, he had a, I forgot where the article is at, but uh, published an article on something like this. And he's working on it in his dissertation. And it's, it's like, um, it's probably Aquinas's line, but God's like a fire. And wherever you stand in relation to that fire, you know, it, it'll, it'll warm you, but you get too close, it'll burn you. You yeah. put a marshmallow on it and whatever, it'll feed you. And so it's something like that when it comes to relations and, and making the creation, the, the creator relation, a Cambridge uh, change or a Cambridge relation. I don't know if that's right, yeah. but uh, which it's, it seems it's like deflationary, right? And it sounds like, well, then that's not that big of a deal for God to be creator. Like you're, you're, you've taken all the wind out of the sails, but when we're getting in this deep on stuff, it's important to, to parse things the way that we yeah. see them, right? Like, so, so I think getting clear on the what what is a relation is so necessary. What is what is a change? I mean, because let's just think here: uh, your mustache versus my mustache. <laughs> Which one is you know? You have a thicker, bigger, more luxurious mustache than I do. This is good. Is there go, a, go on? Yeah. <laughs> is there a property of you have a greater mustache than me mm. that's existing in some platonic realm or in God's mind as an actual property? No, no, I think it just reduces to both of us as concrete objects. I don't think there actually is you, a, a property. You better hope that, that Dr. Welty's not listening to us right now. Then. Well, yeah, man. He, he puts he everything just, up there. He may thrash me. I don't know. I'll make it an email. I mean, like, Jordan, stop. <laughs> and I will probably listen because, you know, I I tried to defend a version of analogical language in one of my courses with him. And, man, he just dumped on me. I, he's really? Like, Dude, this doesn't make sense. I thought he'd be now, an analogical guy. Well, let's, we, that's a whole other discussion okay. of what counts as analogy, what doesn't. Sure. Um, and all, all that goes on in there. But suffice to say, I tried to do some crude theological version of an analogical language and uh, realized that, wow, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm really dumb. <laughs> Man, that's why I, I, so my first chapter in my thesis was, was on analogical predication uh, because it's an authorial analogy. And Van Hoos is like, so you're, you're talking about metaphor and analogy, right? You're, you're going to parse those. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to. He's like, because I took a whole PhD seminar uh, called Analogy and Metaphor. So you, you better do it well. I was like, dude, okay, cool. So I had to do so much work. I, I, I th- here's the key thing. Like if you want to do analogy, you have to affirm some sort of univocity. You can't just say, well, it's analogy that's all the, the way down. That's, that's what the philosophers say. I, I don't, it depends on the day for me, man. Cause like, no, you, and an, an, um, an analogy is a way of speaking literally, but not, uh, univocally. Like that's, that's what 
like an like you can stretch the concept to fit both things that you're talking about. Sure. And there's still a conceptual core somewhere in the middle yeah. that you have to say they both share this. Right. Right. Even yeah, there's all sorts of entailments that yeah. aren't the same across yeah, the board. Yeah. That's fine. That's yeah. what analogy is to me. But yeah. there is a univocal core that you have to affirm and say, yes, they share this property. That's why I can have an analogy. Yeah. So the tricky thing there is like, well, why don't we just find the core and speak univocally? And it's like, well, for whatever reason, I don't know that it's just our limitations that we can't find the core. It might be something like, like in uh, the creator creature distinction. It's like, how would I ever find the core? Well, okay, we can hide. We can we can say, look, I'm I'm limited. He's unlimited. So there's no way for me to find that. And maybe God would God can find the core. But let's take knowledge. I mean, yeah. knowledge seems to be a, a communicable shared property mm-hmm. that I have, that you have, that God would have. Yeah. Um, but I affirm an analogical version of that, which would just mean that knowledge just is to know a true fact or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact one-to-one correspondence for me as it is for God. Now, God, the way he has his knowledge is vastly different than how I have it. He right. has it at all this one singular moment all before him type of thing where I have it's to qualitatively it. different as well as quantitatively. Yeah. I forget stuff. I don't know everything. So yeah, it, there is a difference, but at the same time, it knowledge just is knowing something that's true. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and I think it is important that, so I, I chafe when you start saying univocal, but, but if you, like literal, like I want to say literal. Yeah, yeah. Like we both literally, God and I both have, literal knowledge about the position of this Nikon camera. Uh, and some people would say that that knowledge is tensed for God and that would mess with uh, uh, immutability, immutability, which we can get to here too. Um, yeah, man, we've got so much stuff to, to chat about. So what, what's next? What, what do we, we want to talk so, so, um, so we got Aseity, which I think is a really, really good one. I have been, uh, it's been heartening uh, to use that phrase. It's been heartening to see a lot of, a lot more people use Aseity. Um, a lot more philosophers um, saying, hey, Asadi is a really big deal. Even the ones who want to dump on simplicity. Uh, I'm like, hey, look, I know that you're dumping on simplicity, but at least you have Asadi. At least you see how important that is. And so I've been really encouraged that a lot of my friends are saying, dude, Asadi is so huge. So I'm glad we, we covered that one. But now we get to the, the dreaded uh, simplicity. I, it's not, I, I don't think it's dreaded. You, you can take it or leave it. I think yeah. you can get to immutability with or without it. Yeah. So the, the basic idea is just, you know, change requires composition of some sort. God is simple. Therefore, God can't change, which you read, you read Aquinas and his summa. That's, that's one of the two arguments you're going to get. You're going to get this infinite perfection one. Yeah. You're going to get the, well, God's simple. Therefore, he can't change. Yeah. And if, so if you affirm simplicity, great argument. Yeah. If you don't, then it's not a good one. So I, I think this is just an ancillary argument for immutability, which I guess, you know, if maybe you don't affirm simplicity, but if you pile up all these arguments, well, yeah. okay, maybe I changed my mind. It's it's true because yeah. I want to affirm these other things that are part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on this one. Right. Uh, I would I would mention it, but it, it's not something that I think is core to the doctrine. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you said that because a lot of times people will put such an emphasis on simplicity and say it does all these things and change change requiring composition is interesting. Uh, I don't know if if there's like a mirological simple that might be yeah. different. Like if there's one like a, a one super string uh, that God made, like it's simple. 
I don't know about super string. I'm just using that because I don't I don't know if they exist or whatever. Right, but there's a super string or whatever fundamental particle you want to say. Like, would it would it have to be a composite in order to like heat up or slow down or speed up? What do you make of that? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I, the, <laughs> uh, obviously, then you're gonna be like, well, are there really actual symbols? Yeah, right. Th- besides God, those types of things. I mean, yeah. If, there's not yeah, I say simple. So I think that's why I say is really important too, because God yeah. could make a simple thing, but it would be it would not be I say because it would be dependent on God for creating it. And I mean that's why I want to use things like Asaity and perfection as the core yeah. generating doctrines for anything that I'm doing, because that's yeah. a shared assumption across the board. Whereas when I start going arguments from simplicity, arguments from timelessness, arguments from uh, pure act, those types of things are becoming uh, more narrow. And who they're going to convince. Yeah. And for me, my goal is to convince people. That's uh, good. I want people to share my viewpoint because I think it's right. So yeah. I'm going to use shared assumptions to do that. Yeah. So some people will be like, well, you're not very good at being reformed or confessional or something because you minor on simplicity and that's a major thing. Okay. I'm trying to convince people and persuade them. Yeah. Like, big deal. Like, I think simplicity is right. But just the reality is most people today don't think simplicity is right. Yeah. So I'm not going to spend all my time and energy trying to focus on that when I can focus on other shared assumptions that we have and build from there. Yeah. I think that's really wise, dude. I, that's that's what I try as well. Um, I think it's just that's that's what we do in evangelism. That's what like that's how you win people. That's how you persuade people. Hey, look, you believe this. I believe this, too. Let me show you how believing yeah. that can lead you down this road and look stop stop wherever you want along the way and we'll talk but that, yeah. that's it that's also a good means you motive. don't be a freaking jerk about <laughs> your beliefs too so Seriously. let's just can we all just be on the same team of let's yeah. not be jerks yeah yeah dude that's a good one okay well uh this this next one is really interesting too so the they're all interesting but the argument yeah. from eternity yeah, I think this is probably the best one that requires a commitment of something else that is not totally shared. Yeah. So the idea would be change requires me to exist at T1 and T2. I have to exist at 12 o'clock and then exist at 12.01 to experience change because that's just what change is. It's like this passage of time, uh, the passage of moments. Yeah. Um, so it, it would mean an eternity in a timeless sense. Mm-hmm. Because the assumption, the next assumption would be God is eternally timeless. So he doesn't actually properly exist at T1 and then at T2. He, he exists at some transcendental plane of existence that is both T1 and T2 at the same time. Yeah. Therefore, God cannot change. And I think this is a, a valid sound argument. Hmm. The question is, do you, I guess, do you actually affirm that God is timeless in this sense? So I think if you, if you can get people to timelessness, you're going to get immutability because it's a necessary consequence of timelessness. Yeah. Yeah. This because one is just fundamental. That's just what change is. And yeah. So if you, you exist timelessly, then you, you can't change. Because you need time to change it. And I wonder I've listened to some some physics. I've been listening to some physics lately, and they talk about you know the relation between time and space and how time is like the. I don't know. It's so tricky when you get into like the fundamental aspects of time and space. So like whatever you affirm, God is outside of space. Um, then he 
yeah, he's outside of time. And and if you need time to if you need time to change, then he's outside of that. But you also so you have the the transcendence and imminence of God. So God is is imminent uh, in reality as well. So what do you make of that? Because I know um, Sproul said this once, and he's like, I'm going to show you that God doesn't exist, right? And and he showed like basically premise two that God is eternal and does not properly exist either a T1 or T2. But you got people who want to say God is, he's omnipresent, right? It's one of the omnis. We talked about how important those are. What do you make of, how, how can you hold both those together? Well, if you want to go probably the more traditional route on omnipresence, omnipresence doesn't mean he, God's actually in time in any sense. It just mm-hmm. means he has the power to act at any moment and yeah. the knowledge required at any moment. And that is what counts as presence. Yeah. So on that account, I don't think there's any problem here. Now, okay. if you want to go a more serious route of omnipresence, which, which I'm very sympathetic to and probably have this, like, I think it like tickles some of my intuitions to say, yeah. you know, it's just, he's, he's entirely present by his essence as well. In some sense, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how to cash all that out, but I think you guys, you got guys like Turretin who are actually making this argument about omnipresence. So it's not like... Yeah. And immensity, some, right? Tur- uh, yeah. A big emphasis. Well, that means he's omnipresent because he's immense. I think Ross right. Inman makes that point as well. Yes, he does. So that's the idea that's going on there. And I don't know how that would affect this. I mean, I just... Yeah, it's tricky. I need to think about it more. Well, man. dude, so this is this is one thing I think... <clears throat> I think the, the authorial analogy can help here because... Um, God, like if God's the author and he wrote himself into the story, well, yeah, he's, he's present. He can do whatever he wants in the story. Tolkien is present on every yeah. page of the Hobbit. Um, or, or let's go C.S. Lewis is present on every page of, uh, the great divorce. Cause he's actually a character in that story as well. And he can act all the time. He's present to his characters. He's there on every page, but he's there in different senses. He's there as a character, but he's also there as an author. But as an author, he's there in the transcendental way that you were talking about, where these yeah. are his words, this is his story, these are his thoughts. And then he's there in this present, uh, different sense as being the main the main character, like God is the main character of, of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. That's good. Yeah, you, 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 Probably some of your other guests are way smarter than me and could answer this question better than I could. But who else is as good looking as me? That's right. So, well, that's why you're here, man. It's just the eye candy. No, this is good, man. This is see. I love that you're able to do this too. Some some guys, um, some people are less comfortable going at the edge of their thought. Yeah, and that's what I love doing. That's why we're doing this, you know, podcast because it's like, hey, we don't have all the answers. I certainly don't, but it's just Look, fun to think through and and see where you have to bite bullets. I have learned the most when I get into arguments and I get to that edge where I realize I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to say something really stupid right. to try to like throw them off. But yeah. then I realize I go home. I'm like, man, I have no idea how to answer that question. Right. And it drives me to understand it. So for mm-hmm. me, I mean, I, I'm in this constant cycle of realizing that I'm really dumb at some point <laughs> and spending all this time trying to think about it. And that's what drives me to not be so dumb there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before I realize I'm dumb somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it, it probably makes sense why we both have shows where we have people come through yeah. and, and help us through. Because I think one thing is, I, I think you're a smart dude, but you can't know oh, all this very stuff. Very kind of you. You need to get to know more people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But like, neither one of us can know all of these things. And like, yeah. our our guests are experts. They've, they've 
spent five years, most of them, thinking through a particular topic. And so it's like now we get to accumulate all of this stuff and we're like this receptacle for all of these because they don't they don't have all the answers that all the other guests have. They have not all there's not enough time in the in the in your life. So it's really nice yeah. to have this kind of funnel of the London Lyceum or Parker's Pensies yeah. to get all the information yeah. in here. And I mean, to th- it's not like I haven't thought about immutability. I mean, I, right. I spent two years on a THM thesis on it, and right. that that means I'm probably in the top like 0.2% of people who've thought about this. That doesn't mean I have good thoughts. In, in I've history, thought about though. it in history, right? Because like, think about human history. How many people have yeah, done that's that? Yeah, probably true. It's crazy. So, to think about. and there's just, I, I mean, I can't think of any monographs dedicated to it. I think uh, there's a guy named Ronnie Kurtz over at Midwestern Seminary who did his dissertation on this. So I imagine his is supposed to get published at some point. So then you'll have a monograph on immutability. Yeah. Yeah. But there's just not really much out there on this. So I think even though I may not have all the answers, I've thought about it more than most people have. Right. Well, and dude, you're crushing it anyway. So it's not like you're doing a bad job. Um, let, let's go on to, to Actus Purus. Um, how How is this one... Well, lay it out and we'll talk about maybe the similarity or dissimilarity between this and simplicity. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I think, almost the same as simplicity, but it's it, it's not because it's a, it's talking about God as pure act. So yeah. as simple as I can make it, the idea that God is pure act is that he has no potentiality to be different or to change or anything. So I have the potential to age i have the potential to lose my hair which you know i'm slowly doing because i'm 31 and i you know when i was 25 i never thought that i'd lose my hair but here i am you know balding is beautiful say it with me yeah um but i have the potential to do that i have the potential to become smart i have the potential to become dumb all these potentialities Pure act says, no, 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 God has no potentialities because again he's perfect and he's infinite and all these other things so Without potentiality, the idea is, well, God can't change because change requires the potential to be different in some respect. Yeah. And if God lacks that potential across the board, well, then God can't change. Right. Uh, I really like this one. I, I, I know there's people who will take issue with um, saying that God doesn't have potentiality, but I just don't see how God could have potential. Like I, he is actual like if anything anyone is it's him like there's I, I the one would be the creation like he had the potential to be creator so you have to flesh that one out but again in, intuitively i'm like well i don't think that's right i don't know how to argue against yeah. it right now i have some kind of like speech act type i think if you if you can if you um mash this together with like a speech act theory and the authorial analogy that i like God is eternally speaking. Uh, the three persons of the Trinity are speaking to each other, glorifying one another to each other. And so for God to turn and and speak out this way and create by his word like he does, I, I think there's something there. I don't have it fully formalized or anything like that, but I think Actus Purus can help us make sense of God going from not creating to creating by the by the word of his mouth, which he's always doing. But like a Unitarian God, I think this would be a problem for because God's not speaking to anyone all of eternity. There's no one that he's communicating with. And then he went yeah, from yeah. that to communicating, you know, being into existence. And so I, I like this one. I think there's something there. And I think a Trinitarian, the Actus Purus argument makes most sense in a, in a Trinitarian uh, view of God. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this one's right. I think it's good. Um, I you typically avoid using it just because the doctrine of God is pure act is so contentious. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't. It seems weird, but I don't know how to get around it. Mm. If you affirm, you know, these other sorts of attributes. Yeah. So unless there's a way to explain God's infinity, God's perfection, all those things without having to have God as pure act, I, I feel like you're, I'm stuck with it, but it's a good yeah. argument. So I'll take it. Yeah. And I just, I like that it, I used to not like it, but, but the, uh, the alternative I think is, well, you have potential, but also you have like an, an inert God who's like mm. not acting yeah. for all of eternity no, that's right. and then went from being inert to acting. And that's the potential turning into the actual. And it's, you can parse it different ways. I'm just saying like intuitively, that's how I feel. And I, I don't like it. Yeah, no, that, that's right. So, I mean, I, I think think it's a pretty good argument. Yeah. Uh, it's it's dependent on you affirming God is pure act. Yeah, right. Um, okay, so we got one more here. We got the argument from priority. So, this one, I think, I don't know if I've seen it anywhere except for Petrus van Maastricht. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could have butchered how you pronounce his name. I, I butcher people's names all the time, <laughs> and he's dead, so I can't ask him. Yeah. How do you pronounce this, bro? He says that whatever is changed is changed by something prior. So change requires some sort of external mover to some or something. Mm-hmm. It seems to be is the claim. And God is supposed to be unmoved and independent from everything prior to him. And so therefore God cannot change. Yeah. I think maybe this is a good one. I, I think you probably can come up with counterexamples. I, I mean, I can't think of them. Yeah. But I'm sure there are counterexamples. Somebody smart would be like, well, that's not true. Uh, you can be changed by something prior and it not be external to you or problematic for your priority as, as you know, the fundamental first unmoved mover. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I like it. I like that you got Van Maastricht there too. Uh, dude's awesome. And all his, his for those listening, he, he's got, his books are being translated over from the from the Dutch right now, or Latin. I yeah. think it was the Dutch. Which and, it, and he's he's fantastic. He's an amazing. And thinker. Jonathan Edwards said he was like the greatest yeah. theologian or something like that. So right. I mean, of course, I think Jonathan Edwards is brilliant. Some yeah. people think he's crazy. He is, but he's I both, still think right? he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, yeah, crazy like a fox. So um, this one, this one's similar to. Um, similar to aseity and so i think it i think it's good it it does yeah. some someone might contend that this is too aristotelian right it's he's got the unmoved yeah. mover but it's actually really interesting to just because god is the unmoved mover this is something that c.s lewis uh he makes his point about uh, pagan gods like the the corn king it's like well god actually mm-hmm. is the corn king he's not the corn king that they mean where there's only one god over the king or, or uh there's only one god who is over the corn but he is the one who gives life to the corn and like he is God of the crops. He's God of the frogs. Like he showed that uh, in Egypt that he's the God of all these different things. And so if they're, you know, if Aristotle's argument's good, then that's God. God is that he's just also personal and he's just way more than Aristotle said, but he he shouldn't be less than what Aristotle said. So just because Aristotle said he's going to move is that's not an argument against it. No, that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So God is unmoved. I, that's interesting. I'll have to think about this one more because I, I, I don't know. I'll have to try and see if, see if I can think of some counterexamples, but intuitively it, it seems right. And since it's Van Maastricht, like 
It, it probably, he probably is. thought about it more than I did. So, and he's <laughs> yeah. a smart dude. Right. Right. But, and all these arguments, I think you end up having to have that first sense of divine immutability that I had this strong sense, because I think the other alternatives of, well, central properties, et cetera, like that, they end up um, revising some of these other attributes that you, that most of these people want to keep like yeah. omniscience or timelessness. Uh, Cause Paul Helm in his book, eternal God has this pretty funny example where it's basically, if you want to take an essential, you know, like that's all that can stay unchanged and everything else can change. Mm-hmm. God's omniscience is actually going to end up changing. Yeah. So God had knowledge it was running at T1, and now he has knowledge of it running at T2. So he's constantly learning, unlearning uh, things, all these types of odd stuff. So I think you're going to end up denying something like omniscience if mm. you want to go the essential immutability route and and like non-essential stuff can change. And I think most people want to keep omniscience that yeah. want to go that essential route. Otherwise, they would just say, well, it's just who cares? It's just his character. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. I think- or, or you have to qualify uh, omniscience in such a way that it's like, well, that's not really what most of us mean by omniscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Okay. So I think you end up having to deny something like that or revise it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as, as we close up here, man, uh, something I want to touch on was impassibility and it's a different, it's a different doctrine, but I want to get your thoughts on it. Like is, is impassibility a subset of immutability or is it, Along in your mind, is it alongside it, or is it a you know a category of an entailment of immutability? Yeah, I personally think it's a subset. Okay. So this, and I think that's the way it's been treated, uh, typically in most of the historical literature, is impassibility is a subset. Now you could say it's a distinct thing, which is fine. You know, whatever. I, I don't think there's any substantial difference from doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think impassibility is just that idea that. God cannot ex- be externally acted upon. Yeah. And uh, of course you have different sense of impassibility. Like you have a sense of, you know, immutability. People want to say, well, that just means he's, he can't be acted upon against his will. Mm-hmm. So he can be acted upon if he allows it. If he wills it. Or, yeah. or he can be acted upon by himself or, yeah. uh, I think the strong sense of just across the board blanket can't be acted upon for any circumstance, any reason. It's probably the most traditional. And it's not that God doesn't have emotions. Mm-hmm. It's that he doesn't have passions. Yeah. So it's not that God doesn't have love. It's that he can't be acted upon by you to change in these characters or virtues that he has his love is an eternal unchanging infinite thing that no matter what i do or you do is going to change it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's so good man i I love that there i'm trying to think of the the scripture quotation um neither did this enter into my mind right so so a lot of open theists will will talk about how god didn't even dream up some of the some of the sins that that people thought of cuz i i want to say the problem of divine creepy emotions and such right <laughs> yeah right right and and wealthy <clears throat> i love wealthy i'm hoping that he'll come on the podcast soon but he um he th- because he's a divine conceptual realist uh, he's got to put those in god's mind and 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 it gives all the uh, open theists the, the heebie-jeebies there. 
uh, or you could you could do some kind of like privation. Uh, okay, so it's a it's a privation of those divine ideas in God's mind. And so, yes, maybe he had the polar concept of evil because that's what Bavink says. Bavink says God eternally knew evil like because there's this problem where does the concept of evil come from god's all good he knows everything and he knows himself and that's all there was so how does he know evil and he says well he doesn't use his language but it's a polar concept argument that because he knows himself and he is good he knows he can also know the exact opposite of himself which is evil and so it's not by like direct acquaintance or anything like that but it's by he can imagine it and he's got a perfect imagination by looking at the opposite of himself um Sorry, all this to say, uh, impassibility, <clears throat> it, well, it's like what you said. People will think this means God can't love us. Uh, but it's actually God, you can't, you can't force God to love you. You can't change his mind. What do you do with, with scripture passages that make it seem as if God has changed his mind or has changed his affections or, uh, the nation of Israel has provoked him to wrath. I mean, it just, it, it, it's metaphorical language. Yeah. It is, I mean, God, if God is timeless, if God has omniscience and all those things, it's, it would have been impossible for him to change his mind. He knew that was going to happen. And these are just ways of speaking to, to get across something that, um, is true, but we don't have really concepts for, I mean, I don't, yeah. The concept of electricity, if I go to an unreached people group in Africa who've never heard of electricity, how do I explain that concept to them? Well, it's this like invisible stuff that goes through like cables. (laughs) (laughs) They have no concept for that. So you have to use terminology that'll make sense. And I I think that's just kind of what's going on there. So, I mean, just trying to use the concepts. And I think you have other texts of scripture that contradicted so to speak and you have to weigh them and understand how it all works together and say well no one of them is a little bit more metaphorical than the other yeah i think that's that's a good way to go about it um yeah and it's calvin's lisping and and uh, accommodated speech i think uh, another way to help people think through these kind of things is to ask can god be surprised because if yeah if that's what you're thinking that god was surprised by their behavior and then he was provoked like you also Think of omniscience. Like God is omniscient; He knows everything. How could He ever be surprised by any of this stuff? And and then I just I want to rely back on the authorial analogy that, yeah, God can be a character in the story and uh, also be the author of the story. So as the author of the story, He's not surprised at all. But as writing Himself into yeah. the novel, He interacts with people for the the sake of the plot and so that He can accommodate Himself to them, so they know this kind of thing is what God hates, and so. I just, I think that's super helpful, but I know people will be thinking like, just, I know my audience, they're going to be bringing up some of these verses and what about this? And I think you, you made a great point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's an interesting, useful analogy in that sense. Um, yeah. Dude, we've, uh, we've gone like an hour and a half. This has been fantastic, man. I put you on the spot for some things and you handle it super well. I, I seriously appreciate you like going at the razor's edge with me, just, just, thinking through immutability and all of its entail, not all, but many of its entailments here. Man, it's been a blast. And, you know, you guys, listeners, you you can find me on the Twitter machine uh, or whatever, or check us out our website. Um, I'm happy to dialogue more. One more time. What's the, uh, what's the website? Yeah. The London Lyceum.com. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, 
and you can find all the podcasts there. You can find the yeah. book, the critical book reviews, and um, hopefully that that new uh, the tier list of who's in and who's out of orthodoxy. That'll be great <laughs> when you put that one up. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll name names, right? Now. That's right. <laughs> That'd be awesome. All right, man. Well, you you got to come back on. Uh, when cool. we talked about possible topics, you sent me like a hundred because you're writing so many yeah. papers. So uh, I they all look interesting. You really triggered me with the Bavink one. You, you're you're working on one with Bavink and hylomorphism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm I'm trying to do some work in philosophy of mind, and I animalism and hylomorphism just trigger yeah. me. So, and I love Bavink, so you're destroying my boy here. But uh, I'm excited to talk about that one with you too. Yeah, that would be fun. Let's do it. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. Lord willing, we can continue this conversation. But for now, it's going to have to do it. Uh, as always, all glory to God. <laughs>